Chapter Two, Part Eleven of Our Village, Volume One, by Mary Russell Mitford, read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, two thousand and twenty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume One, Walks in the Country, Part Eleven, The Old House at Abberley, June twenty-fifth. What a glowing, glorious day! Summer in its richest prime, noon in its most sparkling brightness little white clouds dappling the deep blue sky and the sun now partially veiled and now bursting through them with an intensity of light it wouldn't do to walk to-day professedly to walk we should be frightened at the very sound and yet it is probable that we may be beguiled into a pretty long stroll before we return home we're going to drive to the old house at Abberley to spend the morning under the shade of those balmy firs and among those luxuriant rose trees and by the side of that brimming Loddon River. Do not expect us before six o'clock, said I, as I left the house. Six at soonest, added my charming companion, and off we drove in our little pony chaise, drawn by our old mare, and with the good-humoured urchin Henry's successor, a sort of younger scrub, who takes care of horse and chaise, and cow and garden, for our charioteer. My comrade in this homely equipage was a young lady of high family and higher endowments, to whom the novelty of the thing, and her own naturalness of character and simplicity of taste, gave an unspeakable enjoyment. She danced the little chaise up and down as she got into it, and laughed for very glee like a child. Lizzie herself could not have been more delighted. She praised the horse and the driver, and the roads and the scenery, and gave herself fully up to the enchantment of a rural excursion in the sweetest weather of this sweet season. I enjoyed all this too, for the road was pleasant to every sense, winding through narrow lanes, under high elms and between hedges, garlanded with woodbine and rose-trees, while the air was scented with the delicious fragrance of blossomed beans. I enjoyed it all, but I believe my principal pleasure was derived from my companion herself. Emily I is a person whom it is a privilege to know. She's quite like a creation of the older poets, and might pass for one of Shakespeare's or Fletcher's women stepped into life, just as tender, as playful, as gentle, and as kind. She is clever, too, and has all the knowledge and accomplishments that a carefully conducted education, acting on a mind of singular clearness and ductility, matured and improved by the very best company, can bestow but one never thinks of her acquirements. It is the charming artless character, the bewitching sweetness of manner, the real and universal sympathy, the quick taste and the ardent feeling that one loves in Emily. She is Irish by birth, and has in perfection the melting voice and soft caressing accent by which her fair countrywomen are distinguished. Moreover, she is pretty. I think her beautiful, and so do all who have heard as well as seen her. But pretty, very pretty, all the world must confess. And perhaps that is a distinction more enviable, because less envied, than the palmy state of beauty. Her prettiness is of the prettiest kind, that of which the chief character is youthfulness. 
a short but pleasing figure, all grace and symmetry, a fair blooming face, beaming with intelligence and good humour, the prettiest little feet and the whitest hands in the world. Such is Emily I. She resides with her maternal grandmother, a venerable old lady, slightly shaken with the palsy, and when together, and they are so fondly attached to each other that they are seldom parted, it is one of the loveliest combinations of youth and age ever witnessed. There's no seeing them without feeling an increase of respect and affection for both grandmother and granddaughter, always one of the tenderest and most beautiful of natural connections, as Richardson knew when he made such an exquisite use of it in his matchless book. I fancy that Grandmamma Shirley must have been just such another venerable lady as Mrs. S., and our sweet Emily, oh no, Harriet Byron is not half good enough for her. There is nothing like her in the whole seven volumes. But here we are at the bridge. Here we must alight. This is the Loddon, Emily. Is it not a beautiful river? Rising level with its banks, so clear and smooth and peaceful, giving back the verdant landscape and the bright blue sky and bearing on its pellucid stream the snowy water-lily, the purest of flowers, which sits enthroned on its own cool leaves, looking chastity itself like the lady in Comus. That queenly flower becomes the water, and so do the stately swans who are sailing so majestically down the stream, like those who, on St. Mary's Lake, float double swan and shadow. We must dismount here and leave Richard to take care of our equipage under the shade of these trees while we walk up to the house. See, there it is. We must cross this stile. There is no other way now. And crossing the stile, we were immediately in what had been a drive round a spacious park and still retained something of the character, though the park itself had long been broken into arable fields and in full view of the great house, a beautiful structure of James I's time, whose glassless windows and dilapidated doors form a melancholy contrast with the strength and entireness of the rich and massive front. The story of that ruin, for such it is, is always to me singularly affecting. It is that of the decay of an ancient and distinguished family, gradually reduced from the highest wealth and station to actual poverty. The house and park and a small estate around it were entailed on a distant cousin and could not be alienated, and the late owner, the last of his name and lineage, after long struggling with debt and difficulty, farming his own lands and clinging to his magnificent home with a love of place almost as tenacious as that of the younger Foscari, was at last forced to abandon it, retired to a paltry lodging in a paltry town, and there died about twenty years ago, broken-hearted. His successor, bound by no ties of association to the spot, and rightly judging the residence to be much too large for the diminished estate, immediately sold the superb fixtures, and would have entirely taken down the house, if on making the attempt the masonry had not been found so solid that the materials were not worth the labour. A great part, however, of one side is laid open, 
and the splendid chambers with their carving and gilding are exposed to the wind and rain. Sad memorials of past grandeur. The grounds have been left in merciful neglect. The park indeed is broken up. The lawn mown twice a year like a common hayfield, the grotto mouldering into ruin, and the fish ponds choked with rushes and aquatic plants. But the shrubs and flowering trees are undestroyed, and have grown into a magnificence of size and wildness of beauty, such as we may imagine them to attain in their native forests. Nothing can exceed their luxuriance, especially in the spring, when the lilac and laburnum and double cherry put forth their gorgeous blossoms. There's a sweet sadness in the sight of such floweriness amid such desolation. It seems the triumph of nature over the destructive power of man. The whole place in that season more particularly is full of a soft and soothing melancholy, reminding me, I scarcely know why, of some of the descriptions of natural scenery in the novels of Charlotte Smith, which I read when a girl, and which perhaps for that reason hang on my memory. But here we are, in the smooth grassy ride, on the top of a steep turfy slope descending to the river, crowned with enormous firs and limes of equal growth, looking across the winding waters into a sweet, peaceful landscape of quiet meadows shut in by distant woods. What a fragrance is in the air from the balmy fir trees and the blossomed limes! What an intensity of odour! And what a murmur of bees in the lime trees! What a coil those little winged people make over our heads! And what a pleasant sound it is! the pleasantest of busy sounds, that which comes associated with all that is good and beautiful, industry and forecast and sunshine and flowers. Surely these lime trees might store a hundred hives. The very odour is of a honeyed richness, cloying, satiating. Emily exclaimed in admiration as we stood under the deep, strong, leafy shadow, and still more when honeysuckles trailed their untrimmed profusion in our path, and roses, really trees, almost intercepted our passage. On, Emily, farther yet, force your way by that jessamine. It will yield. I'll take care of this stubborn white rose-bough. Oh, take care of yourself, pray take care, said my fairest friend. Let me hold back the branches. After we had won our way through the strait, at some expense of veils and flounces, she stopped to contemplate and admire the tall, graceful shrub, whose long thorny stems, spreading in every direction, had opposed our progress, and now waved their delicate clusters over our heads. "'Did I ever think,' exclaimed she, "'of standing under the shadow of a white rose tree? "'What an exquisite fragrance, and what a beautiful flower! "'So pale and white and tender, "'and the petals thin and smooth as silk. "'What rose is it?' "'Oh, don't you know? "'Did you never see it before? "'It is rare now, I believe, and it seems rarer than it is, "'because it only blossoms in very hot summers.' But this, Emily, is the musk rose, that very musk rose of which Titania talks, and which is worthy of Shakespeare and of her, is it not? Oh, no, do not smell to it. It is less sweet so than other roses. 
but one cluster in a vase or even that bunch in your bosom will perfume a large room as it does the summer air oh we will take twenty clusters said emily i wish grandmamma were here she talked so often of a musk rose tree that grew against one end of her father's house i wish she were here to see this echoing her wish and well laden with musk roses planted perhaps in the days of shakespeare we reached the steps that led to a square summer-house or banqueting-room overhanging the river the under part was a boat-house whose projecting roof as well as the walls and the very top of the little tower was covered with ivy and woodbine and surmounted by tufted barberries bird cherries acacias covered with their snowy chains and other pendant and flowering trees beyond rose two poplars of unrivalled magnitude towering like stately columns over the dark tall firs and giving a sort of pillared and architectural grandeur to the scene we were now close to the mansion, but it looked sad and desolate, and the entrance, choked with brambles and nettles, seemed almost to repel our steps. The summer-house, the beautiful summer-house, was free and open and inviting, commanding from the unglazed windows, which hung high above the water, a reach of the river terminated by a rustic mill. There we sat, emptying our little basket of fruit and country cakes, till Emily was seized with the desire of viewing, from the other side of the Loddon, the scenery which had so much enchanted her. "'I must,' said she, "'take a sketch of the ivied boat-house, and of this sweet room and this pleasant window. Grandmamma would never be able to walk from the road to see the place itself, but she must see its likeness.' So forth we sallied, not forgetting the dear musk-roses we had no way of reaching the desired spot but by retracing our steps a mile during the heat of the hottest hour of the day and then following the course of the river to an equal distance on the other side nor had we any materials for sketching except the rumpled paper which had contained our repast and a pencil without a point which i happened to have about me but these small difficulties are pleasures to gay and happy youth Regardless of such obstacles, the sweet Emily bounded on like a fawn, and I followed, delighting in her delight. The sun went in, and the walk was delicious. A reviving coolness seemed to breathe over the water, wafting the balmy scent of the firs and limes. We found a point of view presenting the boat-house, the water, the poplars and the mill in a most felicitous combination. The little straw fruit-basket made a capital table, and refreshed and sharpened and pointed by our trusty lackey's excellent knife —your country boy is never without a good knife, it is his prime treasure — the pencil did double duty, first in the skilful hands of Emily, whose faithful and spirited sketch does equal honour to the scene and to the artist, and then in the humbler office of attempting a faint transcript of my own impressions in the following sonnet. It was an hour of calmest noon, at day of ripest summer, or the deep blue sky white speckled clouds came sailing peacefully, half shrouding in a chequered veil the ray of the sun, too ardent else, what time we lay by the smooth lodden, opposite the high steep bank, 
which as a coronet gloriously wore its rich crest of firs and lime-trees, gay with their pale tassels, while from out a bower of ivy, where those columned poplars rear their heads, the ruined boat-house, like a tower, flung its deep shadow on the waters clear. My Emily, forget not that calm hour, nor that fair scene, by thee made doubly dear. End of chapter 2, part 11